Jumping back into our study of 1 Timothy this morning, chapter 5. It's been some weeks now since we were with our friend Paul, but we're going back here, and the plan as usual is to continue through the rest, rest of this book, uh, verse by verse, and gleaning from each verse the things that we can hold true and things that will prepare us to live our life uh, in a better manner. Paul's gone through a host of things already. He's writing to, to Timothy, who is a disciple of his. He's in Ephesus. Paul left him there when, when he was forced to leave town himself. And so we understand that Paul had lots of intentions in writing this letter. And one of those is just simply to be an, an encouragement to Timothy, uh, sometimes I don't think we really appreciate the difference between our circumstances and the circumstances that Timothy and Paul were in. And that is this and that. If they were at distant places from one another, the only way they could communicate was through letters. And they didn't have a mail system. Those letters had to be hand-carried by someone to get from where they were written to where they were going. And so we can, ima- we can imagine this. It is Timothy... Uh, receives this letter from Paul, he's probably filled with a great deal of excitement because maybe he hasn't heard from him for quite a long time. Paul has given him a great deal of responsibility. He's a young man, as we find from the epistle itself. He's a younger man, and he's been given a lot of responsibility. And so one of the reasons Paul writes these letters is to encourage him, and not only to encourage him, but also to teach him. Timothy has a very teachable spirit. He's been given a lot of responsibility. He's in a high position, not only in the ministry of Paul, but in regard to the church in general. He needs this kind of instruction from Paul. And the only way Paul can give it to him now is to do it through letters. So how often do you write letters? I used to do it a lot more often than I do now. But just think about the last time that maybe you were going through something in, in your life, a difficult time in your life, and, and out of the clear blue, you got a letter from someone that maybe you hadn't heard from for a long time or maybe someone that, that sits close to you in, in church on Sunday morning. But they sent that letter to you. They sent you a little note just as a, a note of encouragement to you and and I've always loved Lucy for a lot of reasons, but one of them is this, is it always thrills me to get one of Lucy's letters of encouragement, and they come pretty regularly to her pastor, and he very much appreciates it, and all the other letters and things that I get from other people in the church. But we all need those kinds of things. And I want to encourage us to be a church that does, not the norm, but really goes out of its way uh, to encourage uh, everyone. If we look back at chapter 1, one of the first things Paul says to Timothy that he's, he's, he's supposed to be teaching men not to teach false doctrines or strange doctrines. I think that has a little bit to do maybe with the context that we find ourselves in this morning. Chapter 5, first four verses. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father to the younger men as brothers the older women as mothers and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are widows indeed, 
But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable acceptable, uh, in the sight of God. There's a sense in which the context here demands that we understand some things, and one of those is this, and that is the church is a family. Uh, not so much in the very beginning verses is, is, is very obvious, but as you get into this particular chapter, you're going to find there's really uh, a parallel going on here between the, the concept, uh, Timothy's concept of the family and, and the way things are supposed to apply uh, in the context of the church. It's very possible that some of these older man, men that, uh, that Paul is speaking in regard to now are maybe some of those that Timothy is supposed to correct in their teaching. You know, there's a possibility. There are times when people set off on, in, in wrong directions and they, they teach falsely. And maybe they are doing it on purpose. That we understand this, that very often when false things are taught in the context of the church, it's not done with willful intent. It's done just simply because someone does not understand the fullness of maybe the particular thing they're teaching through. Maybe they haven't studied the Bible like they need to because we, we, this is our practice here. Remember that, and that is we weigh everything in the balance of Scripture. So all of the teaching that comes to you needs to weigh in that balance, and if it doesn't, then you are to reject it. Do not sharply rebuke an older man. Now, the, the, the term there is exactly the same term that he used all the way back in chapter 3 when he was talking about elders. So some people might read this as if you're not never supposed to rebuke one of the men in the church that had been put in the position of elder. Uh, that's really not what he's talking about here. We just need to understand he's talking about older men in general. Ultimately, what he's encouraging him to do here is not to turn a blind eye to things that are done wrongly, to teaching that is wrong, and etc. What Paul, in his great wisdom, is doing is encouraging Timothy to approach those things in a manner that will be constructive and will build and strengthen the church rather than approaching it in a manner that's going to bring division and difficulty and issues and problems. He's teaching him to be wise in his approach. He has a lot of things to do. He has some very important things to do. He has very difficult things to do. But he needs to do those things in a manner that is respectful a manner that is encouraging, a manner that is challenging. Paul, in just a few verses back, has said to him not to let, let anyone look down on his youthfulness. You need to understand that he was a young man in very high position. 
You know, I would imagine there were lots of rumors that went around in the church and people talked about him when he wasn't there and this, that, and the other about what a young upstart he was and how he didn't seem to understand, you know, the rightful way to do some things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But Paul's coming alongside of him and he's giving him a very, very good and very godly counsel. Years of the ministry begins to, you know, even boneheaded, pig-headed people like me. <laughs> if you've been in the ministry for, for much time at all, you begin to learn some lessons. Uh, I can tell you right now, there are all kinds of things I've done as a pastor. If I could go back and undo them. The, and, and not, I'm not saying here that I've ever confronted people that didn't need to be confronted, but I think there are times when I probably have confronted people uh, in a wrong manner. And one of the things that we do very often is this. It's easy. We need to understand this. That any time we ever come to someone and we correct them in regard to anything to do with Christianity and our Lord and the gospel and etc., there's a sense in which we're saying you need to be like I am. You need to understand things like I do. You follow what I'm saying? That any time we do something like that, we're putting ourselves in a position of saying to that person, I know. And I'm going to teach you, and I'm going to show you. And ultimately, there's a sense in which it could be understood that what I'm saying is you need to be more like I am. So it puts you in a very, very difficult position. But there's a right way to do it, and there's a wrong way to do it. Let me tell you the wrong way to do it. When I became a new believer, I had been a church kid uh, kind of off and on through my lifetime, and by the time I got to high school, I left Christian, uh, the church completely. I didn't believe in the gospel, didn't believe in Jesus, didn't believe in God. Majored in science, became an atheist for the most part, even though every now and then I did wonder about things. Uh, but when I became a believer, I, I almost felt like my parents had lied to me about what Christianity was all along. Because we were church members, we, and I'm not sure that my parents, either one of them, ever shared the gospel with me. It was almost like it was assumed that if you were there, then, then you might, maybe you would hear it sometime, and it would soak in, and it would mean something to you. So there was a sense when I first became a believer that I, that I was angry with my parents because I felt like they hadn't really told me or shown me the, the true way. And so I went to my father, and, and my father is, is a very, very nice man in a lot of ways. In other ways, my father can be extremely harsh. Uh, and Lori and I went to him, and she hadn't been a, a believer very long. And, uh, and so we went to him, and we were sharing with him because it had something to do with the care of my grandmother. And, and we were not happy with some things that were going on, and... Uh, and so we went to him, and, uh, and the way that conversation ended was I said to my father, I said, unless you get your act together, you're going to hell. Okay? <laughs> That's not the way I would do it now. 
but you can understand. You can understand that very often when you're young and you're zealous and this, that, and the other, and you, and, you, and you really want the message to get across and things like that, that you don't sometimes think about what you're saying and how someone can hear what you're saying. Uh, and I would imagine my father just felt, among other things, extremely disrespected in that whole uh, conversation that took place. And I've had other conversations with him since then that were, went a little bit better. But you can imagine, that didn't go very well with him at all, and, and, and you really wouldn't expect it to. So that's the wrong way of doing things. There's a right way. And the right way is being sensitive to where people happen to be. Being kind. Not turning a blind eye to wrongful doing. But addressing it in a manner that is truly encouraging and strengthening. In other words, what Paul is doing is encouraging Timothy to practice the art of gentle persuasion. It is an art. And just like with all other forms of art, it takes a lot of work to be able to do it. To be able to talk to people about the most intimate things very important things, wrongful doing on their part, wrongful doing maybe on your part. It's hard to do those kinds of things. But I can guarantee you things always go much better when it is done with gentle persuasion. And let me tell you, it will surprise people when you do this because it's not what people are used to getting. They're used to getting the other so when you confront someone, I just want to encourage you to do it in this, in, in this manner, to do it gently, to do it kindly, do it with a rightness of heart, and never go to people with a self-righteous attitude. That is the worst thing that we can ever do. What I'm saying here is this, guys, is be willing to acknowledge your own guilt, your own sin, your own struggles to those people. Jesus says something similar to this when he says, Judge not lest ye be judged. And some people read that to say that Jesus says that we're never to pass judgment on anybody. We're never to do anything along those lines at all. But, but they only take, this is an example of taking one verse out of context and making it mean and sound very differently than it does when you keep it in context. Because what Jesus goes on to say is this, is make sure you get the log, in other words, the big sin out of your own eye before you go to your brother to help him get the little splinter out of his eye. You don't go with a self-righteous attitude.
most of us are older and we can remember respect being something that was very much emphasized in our families and in our culture, in our society. And there's a sense in which some of us understand that it was beat into us. Right? You know what I mean? Some of you know exactly what I mean. I think somewhere we had gotten off track. Because we understand this, that respect is not something that you can force anybody to give. They may do it outwardly. They may use respectful language or respectful demeanor and all of that. But it's not respect, guys, if you're nice and, 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 and smoothie-oozy on the outside, but you're seething inside. I mean, real respect is not something we can force people to have. Real respect, and you've heard this before, is truly earned. So we always have to consider that. He says here, not only to not sharply rebuke or chastise an older man, Think it'd be wise that, that if you had that conversation with that older man that maybe you did it in private, not in public. And there's all kinds of little facets you can work into all of this. Appeal to him as a father. In other words, look upon, in a sense, all older men as fathers. You think maybe they have some wisdom that you don't have? You think maybe they've had, they've had some life experiences that you have not had? Do you think maybe if you have a deep-hearted conversation with them that you might be the one walking away that's really encouraged by what they say? Not only uh, older men, but basically when you go to younger men, treat them as if they were your brother. In a good way. Y'all know what it means to most of us know what it means to have siblings. I have a brother and and he and I have a closer relationship now than we've had in a long time. He's a believer, so we have that in common with each other. Uh, but it wasn't always that way when we were growing up. There were times when I actually have a a knot in one of the bones in my hand that I can feel today because I hit my brother in the back of his head with my fist when we were kids. <laughs> Fighting was something that happened on a pretty regular basis. And I would imagine that some of you could relate to that yourselves. Uh, but the, the gist of what Paul is getting at here is to, to treat that younger man as a brother, and, 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 and in particular, probably the, more often than not, when, when he's, you're going to this person, it's going to be a fellow believer, and so you're supposed to treat him as a brother, not as someone that's lower than you or anything like that, but someone that's on even, kill, even ground with you, not to talk down to him. Younger men today... They need for older people, older men, to show interest in them. They do. 
You know, to look around this room, and what I want to say to us this morning is we're in this all together. There's a sense in which we are family, and we need to be here for family, whether we're younger or older or we're, we're male or female. This is the whole gist of what Paul is getting at here. He also tells him to basically treat the older women as mothers and the younger women as sisters in all purity. So this whole relational thing being done the right way doesn't, doesn't just happen amongst the guys. It also happens amongst the gals. Transcends age. It transcends sexes. There are many cultures in this world today and through the history of the world that the women have been belittled and treated very badly as second class citizens. Lori and I experienced it really firsthand when we are in Uganda. Uh, the first time she was there with me, and one of the things that becomes very apparent from the very beginning, and that is that women are not valued much at all. Young girls are not valued much at all. The only real importance given to anyone is to the males. The crazy thing about it is this, is the men don't seem to do a whole lot of work. Sometimes you wonder if some of them ever do any work at all. The women do all the work, and it's really very often they're, they're almost as if they are enslaved to their husbands. What he says is what you do. What he says is how it goes. Lori and, uh, and Peggy Ward, who was with us, developed a close relationship with a young girl named Beatrice who, who would come and help them. They were, we were on a construction crew, and, and they've, they've cooked meals over the charcoal brazier, uh, and all of that. And, and so she would come and she would help Peggy and Lori. Her name was Beatrice, and they just really enjoyed being with her, and they developed somewhat of a relationship with her. But we found out the next year, and she was maybe 13 or 14 years old, that her father sold her to another, an older man uh, to be his wife uh, for a number of goats. Speaking of goats, <laughs> I, can't, uh, I can't help but tell the story because uh, it really says a lot about what we're talking about here. But we were, uh, we were driving down the road one day, and, and we were going a long distance with the missionaries. And we stopped at a place to eat lunch. And as we were there, some of the local people were walking by, and there was this particular uh, African man that stopped and started talking to the missionary we were with. And, of course, we couldn't understand anything they were saying because they were speaking in Lubuisi or something, some dialect. But every now and then they would start laughing. And so anyway, the conversation ended. We got back in the the truck, and we headed down the road. And just out of curiosity, I said, what in the heck were you guys talking about? It was so funny. And he said, "Uh, he was trying to buy your wife. (laughs) <laughs> he said, uh, she looks like she can carry lots of bananas. <laughs> and uh, the offer got all the way up to 50 goats, which is a whole bunch in Uganda. And so we know in a personal way. But, but it just speaks to how, and, and there was a sense in which the guy was serious about this. You need to understand that. 
Can you imagine being a woman living in a culture like that? How oppressing it would be, how demeaning it would be. The church, my friends, can never be that way. We need to value the women among us and value them not lightly, but value them very highly, whether they be young or older or even little babies like uh, our granddaughter, Emily. <laughs> you thought I forgot, didn't you, Lindsay? <laughs> uh, so anyway... Uh, you understand what Paul is getting out here? And that is our, our demeanor, our behavior, the way our attitude toward other people needs to go everywhere. Not just to certain special people, but with all the different people that we deal with, whether they be young or old men or, or women or even, even little children. One of the things that, that helps us in all of this, there's a couple of things I want to challenge you with. One of those is this, is... Just remember this, the impression people have of you is the impression they have of Jesus very often. Especially when you're talking about non-church people, your neighbors. When they see you and they know you're a church person, they know you believe in this Jesus person, their, their idea of Jesus is basically what you portray to them. Just remember that always. The other thing is this, is there is a reason for all of this. There's a reason why we should, we should treat every person with respect. And that is this, and that is that every person is made in the image of God. Now, we understand that sin is coming into the picture, and that, 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 that image is twisted and bent, and very often is almost unrecognizable completely. But just remember this, that the, 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 the image of God still resides in every single person. In other words, that person is valuable in the eyes of God, and the reason they're valuable to him is because they're made in his image. He made them in his image. Honor widows who are real widows or truly widows. And if you read on through here, you can kind of get some idea of exactly what Paul means by this. He's talking about those who have no relatives to take care of them and are no longer of marrying age. In other words, those who are in essence destitute. They have no family. They have no one to take care of them, to provide for them. If you read on to verse 4, uh, he, he talks there about children and grandchildren. It's their responsibility to take care of widowed mom and widowed grandmother if they're not able to take care of themselves. Years ago, we had a lady come to church and she probably would have fit into this ground, even though she had a daughter, a living, an older daughter that was well into her adulthood. Uh, that daughter was not because of her, her husband. Her husband refused to let her really do much to help or aid her, her mother. Uh, and another thing about the situation that really aggravated it was when her husband died, he left her the house, but he left all of his money to his grandkids. 
And so, in essence, he left her destitute. And by the time we got to know her, she was living in this dilapidated house. Every time it rained, it was water pouring in because the roof needed to be repaired. And one of the first things the men in the church did, and I talked about this just a few weeks ago, and it was really, it was, it, let me just say this to you. We need these people. It's not so much that they need us. We need these people. You and I need these people. The church needs these people. Because it will challenge us to do things that we might not normally do. Because what we did is some guys took off work, took vacation days. Other guys put off other things they were going to do and all that. And we spent three days putting a new roof on this lady's house. For nothing. We paid for the materials. We did all of it. And over the years, we did a lot for this lady. Not that she was that lovely of a person. Obviously, as soon as we showed an interest in taking care of her and looking after her affairs and everything like that, that any time something came up, who did she call? The water heater went out. The electric bill didn't get paid. The telephone bill didn't get paid, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And let me just say this, that there were times when we were frustrated about this whole situation. But let me tell you, we needed Thelma Brown. We really did. We need Thelma Browns. Because in these situations, Christ is encouraging us to do things that don't necessarily come naturally to us. I mean, the church today, more often than not, as soon as we get some idea that someone has some need, the first question is, do they have the resources themselves to take care of this? Or is this something really the church wants to get involved in? Do they have children? It's the children's responsibility. They have grandchildren. It's really their responsibility. It's not the church's responsibility. Well, let me just say, if we're in that mindset, guys, we're in the wrong business. Now, there's something to be said for some things like that, and that is this, is we need to be good stewards of the money that God brings into the church, and that means that we need to make sure it gets spent wisely and rightly and all of that. And we understand that there's a culture out there that would take advantage of the church with every, every chance it gets. We understand all of that. But we cannot harden our hearts to the point that we do nothing instead. There's always a risk that we're going to help someone that maybe they don't really need to be helped. But I am always of the idea that when we err, we err on the side of grace. And that is, I think there's a whole lot more of an issue here in not helping someone who really needs to be helped than helping someone that probably shouldn't have been helped. Remember the context under which the office of deacon was created? Acts chapter 6. What was going on? Well, the Christians were eating together during those days, and, uh, and one of the, the responsibilities the church knew that it had was to make sure that everyone had something to eat, and everyone got their fair share. 
And word came to the apostles that certain widows were not getting their daily share of the food distribution. And the apostles were the ones who came up with this idea of deacons to appoint men in the church to look after these types of things. And we've never really thought about it, and I've done all the deacon training, and I've never even addressed this issue because it really didn't dawn on me until I was studying through this particular passage myself. That is this, as we need to understand, is deacons, that the widows in the church are one of our primary responsibilities. Those who are truly deacons are those who are truly widows. How often have we done that? Francis Schaeffer once wrote this. I'm trying to find it so I can read it without messing it up too much, but I can't see it here anywhere. He said basically that in the eyes of God, no person is a little person. That all people are significant. That all people are valuable. And I can understand if there happens to be a widowed lady in the church who just who feels like the church family really has not been there for her, has not, not really tried to do what we can do to help her in the, the, the circumstances that she finds herself in. They might be a little dis, maybe disgruntled at this point. And if you happen to be one of those people, I want to apologize to you because it should not be that way. Your church here needs to be here for you. To support you in every way that we possibly can. Because you may see yourself as real little in the eyes of God, but in the eyes of God, you're not little at all. You're very big. Very important. Guys and gals, it's so easy. Well, most of you know this. You know that, my, that Lori and I, are, we've, just, we've struggled a lot because we've, we've been basically given the burden of taking care of my mom and dad as best that we can, as busy as we are, and and all of that. We're not getting a whole lot of help from our family otherwise, and uh, and all of that. My dad looked at me one day and he said, "Why are you doing this?" <laughs> and I don't even remember what I said to him, but he's like, "Why would you do this unless you're you're going to actually get something out of it? You must be doing this because you think you're going to get more money of inheritance or something." This, I, I can guarantee you that was what was on my dad's mind. But something that really hit me this week and brought me to tears is this. Is it so easy to look upon things like this as burdens, to be burdened down with it? How many times have you heard me talk about it in prayer meetings and things like that? We're just so burdened down with all this stuff that we're doing for my mom and dad, and it's not appreciated, and we're being accused of this, that, and the other now, and, you know, and stuff like that. And there's part of me that's saying, you know what, I don't have to do this. Our lives don't have to be completely disrupted because of this. But is that true? 
<laughs> the answer is no. We look upon things like this so often as a burden. And what Paul is encouraging here is this. is to look upon these things more as a privilege. As a privilege. Well, we're going to move on from this next week. Uh, We are going to move on with the celebration of the Lord's Supper this morning. And before we do that, the praise team is going to come and lead us in a hymn of preparation.